Section 8 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 23. George met him at the station, as he had done a year before. But at once, Roger noticed a difference. In the short time since his father's death, certain lines had come in the boy's freckled face, and they gave him a thoughtful, resolute look. George's voice was changing. One moment it was high and boyish, again a deep and manly bass. As he kept his eyes on the horses and talked about his mother, his grandfather from time to time threw curious side glances. "'Oh, yes,' George was saying. "'Mother's all right. She's doing fine. It was pretty bad at first, though.' She wouldn't let me sit up with her any. She treated me like a regular kid. But any fellow with any sense could see how she was feeling. She'd get thinking of the accident. George stopped short and clamped his jaws. You know, my dad did a wonderful thing, he continued presently. Even when he was dying, and mother and I were there by his bed, he remembered how she'd get thinking alone, all about the accident. You see, he knew mother pretty darn well. So he told her to remember that he was the one to blame for it. If it hadn't been for him, he said, they would have gone home in the taxi. That's a pretty good point to keep in her mind. Don't you think so? he inquired, and Roger glanced affectionately into the anxious face by his side. Yes, he said. It's a mighty good point. Did you think of it? Yes, sir, George replied. I've told it to her a good many times, that and two other points I thought of. "'What are they, son?' asked Roger. First, the boy said awkwardly, about how good she was to him, and second, that she let him buy the new car before he died. He had such a lot of fun out of that car. On the last words, the lad's changing voice went from an impressive bass to a most undignified treble. He savagely scowled. Those three points, he continued, in more careful, measured tones, were about all I could think of. I had to use em over and over. On mother, when things got bad, I mean, a flush of embarrassment came on his face. And hold her and kiss her, he muttered. Then he whipped his horses. We've had some pretty bad times this month, he continued, loud and manfully. You see, mother isn't so young as she was. She's well on in her thirties. A glimmer of amusement appeared in Roger's heavy eyes. But she don't cry often any more, and with you here we'll pull her through. He shot a quick look at his grandfather. "'Gee, but I'm glad you're here,' he said. "'So am I,' said Roger, and with a little pressure of his hand on George's shoulder. "'I guess you've had about your share. Now tell me the news. How are things on the farm?' With a breath of evident relief, the lad launched into the animal world, and soon he was talking eagerly. In the next few days with his daughter, Roger found that George was right. She had been through the worst of it. But she still had her reactions, her spells of emptiness, bleak despair, her moods of fierce rebellion or of sudden self-reproach, for not having given Bruce more while he lived, and in such hours her father tried to comfort her with poor success. "'Remember, child, I'm with you, and I know how it feels,' he said. "'I went through it all myself. When your mother died—' "'But mother was so much older,' he looked at his daughter compassionately. "'How old are you?' he inquired. Thirty-six. "'Your mother was thirty-nine, he replied. 
And at that Edith turned and stared at him, bewildered, shocked, brought face to face with a new and momentous fact in her life. Mother only my age when she died? Yes, said Roger gently, only three years older. With a twinge of pain he noticed two quite visible streaks of grey in his daughter's soft blonde hair, and she felt as you do now, as though she were just starting out, and I felt the same way, my dear. If I'm not mistaken, everyone does. You still feel young, but the new generation is already growing up, and you feel yourself being pushed on. And it is hard, it is very hard. Clumsily, he took her hand. Don't let yourself drop out, he said. Be as your mother would have been if she had been left instead of me. Go straight on with your children. To this note he could feel her respond. And at first, as he felt what a fight she was making, Roger glorified her pluck. As he watched her with her children at the table, smiling at their talk, with an evident effort to enter in, and again with her baby snug in her lap, while she read bedtime stories to Bob and little Tad at her side, he kept noticing the resemblance between his daughter and his wife. How close were these two members of his family drawing together now, one of them living, the other dead. But later, as the weeks wore on, she began to plan for her children. She planned precisely how to fit them all into the house in town. She planned the hours for their meals, for their going alone or with the nurse or a maid to their different private schools, to music lessons, to dancing school, and uptown to the park to play. She planned their fall clothes, and she planned their friends, and there came to her father occasional moods of anxiety. He remembered Bruce's grim remarks about those simple schools and clothes, the kind that always cost the most, and he began to realize what Bruce's existence must have been, for scarcely ever in their talks did Edith speak of anything outside of her family. Night after night, with a tensity born of her struggle with her grief, she talked about her children, and Roger was in Bruce's place. He was the one she planned with. At moments, with a vague dismay, he glimpsed the life ahead in his home. George was hard at work each day down by the broken dam at the mill. He had an idea he could patch it up, put the old water-wheel back into place and make it run a dynamo, by which he could light the house and barn and run the machines in the dairy. In his new role as the man of his family, George was planning out his career. He was wrestling with a book entitled Our New Mother Earth, and a journal called The Modern Farm, and to Roger he confided that he meant to be a farmer. He wanted to go in the autumn to the State Agricultural College. But when one day, very cautiously, Roger spoke to Edith of this, with a hard and jealous smile, which quite transformed her features, she said, Oh, I know all about that, father dear. It's just a stage he's going through. And it's the same with Elizabeth, too, and her crazy idea of becoming a doctor. She took that from Alan Baird, and George took his from Deborah. They'll get over it soon enough. They won't get over it, Roger cried. Their dreams are parts of something new, something I'm quite vague about, but some of it has come to stay. You're losing all your chances, just as I did, years ago. You'll never know your children. But he uttered this cry to himself alone. Outwardly he only frowned, and Edith had gone on to say, I do hope that Deborah won't come up this summer. 
She's been very good and kind, of course, and if she comes she'll be doing it entirely on my account. But I don't want her here. I want her to marry. The sooner the better, and come to her senses. Be happy, I mean. And I wish you would tell her so. Within a few days after this, Deborah wrote to her father that she was coming the next week. He said nothing to Edith about it at first. He had William saddled and went for a ride to try to determine what he should do. But it was a ticklish business, for women were queer and touchy, and once more he felt the working of those uncanny family ties. Deborah, he reflected, is coming up here because she feels it's selfish of her to stay away. If she marries at once, as she told me herself, she thinks Edith will be hurt. Edith won't be hurt, and if Edith comes there'll be trouble every minute she stays. But can I tell her so? Not at all. I can't say you're not wanted here. If I do, she'll be hurt. Oh, Lord, these girls! And Deborah knows very well that if she does get married this month, with Laura abroad and Edith up here and only me at the wedding, Edith will smile to herself and say, Now isn't that just like Deborah? As Roger slowly rode along a steep and winding mountain road, gloomily he reflected to what pretty little troubles a family of women could descend so soon after death itself. And he lifted his eyes up to the hills and decided to leave this matter alone. If women would be women, let them settle their own affairs. Deborah was due to arrive on the following Friday evening. All right, let her come, he thought. She would soon see she was in the way, and then in a little affectionate talk he would suggest that she marry right off and have a decent honeymoon before the school year opened. So he dismissed it from his mind. And as he listened in the dusk to the numberless murmuring voices of living creatures, large and small, which rose out of the valley, and as from high above him the serenity of the mountains, there towering over thousands of years, stole into his spirit, Roger had a large quieting sense of something high and powerful looking down upon the earth, a sense of all humanity honeycombed with millions upon millions of small sorrows, absorbing joys and hopes and fears, and in spite of them all, the great life sweeping on, with no great death to check its course, no immense catastrophe, all these little troubles like mere tiny specks of foam upon the surface of the tide. Deborah's visit the following week was as he had expected. Within an hour after her coming he could feel the tension grow. Deborah herself was tense both from the work she had left in New York, where she was soon to have five schools, and from the thought of her marriage, only a few weeks ahead. She said nothing about it, however, until, as a sisterly duty, Edith tried to draw her out by showing an interest in her plans. But the cloud of Bruce's death was there, and Deborah shunned the topic. She tried to talk of the children instead, but Edith at once was on the defensive, vigilant for trouble, and as she unfolded her winter plans she grew distinctly brief and curt. If Deborah doesn't see it now, she's a fool, her father told himself. I'll just wait a few days more, and then we'll have that little talk. CHAPTER Twenty Four. It had rained so hard for the past two days that no one had gone to the village, which was nearly three miles from the farm. But when the storm was over at last, George and Elizabeth tramped down and came back at dusk with a bag full of mail. 
Their clothes were mud bespattered, and they hurried upstairs to change before supper, while Roger settled back in his chair and spread open his New York paper. It was July 30th, 1914. From a habit grown out of thirty years of business life, Roger read his paper in a fashion of his own. By instinct his eyes swept the page for news dealing with individual men, for it was upon people's names in print that he made his living. And so when he looked at this strange front page it gave him a swift twinge of alarm, for the news was not of men but of nations. Austria was massing her troops along the Serbian frontier, and Germany, Italy, Russia, France, and even England were all in a turmoil, with panics in their capitals, money markets going wild. Edith came down in her neat black dress with its narrow white collar, ready for supper. She glanced at her father. "'Why, what's the matter? Look at this.' He tossed her a paper. "'Oh!' she murmured softly. "'Oh, how frightful that would be!' And she read on with lips compressed. But soon there came from a room upstairs the sudden cry of one of her children, followed by a shrill wail of distress, and, dropping the paper, she hurried away. Roger continued his reading. Deborah came. She saw the paper. Edith had dropped, picked it up, and sat down to read, and there were a few moments of absolute silence. Then Roger heard a quivering breath, and glancing up he saw Deborah's eyes, intent and startled, moving down the columns of print in a swift, uncomprehending way. "'Pretty serious business,' he growled. "'It can't happen,' she exclaimed. And they resumed their reading. In the next three days, as they read their news, they felt war like a whirlpool, sucking in all their powers to think or feel, felt their own small personal plans whirled about like leaves in a storm. And while their minds at first dazed and stunned by the thought of such appalling armies, battles, death and desolation, slowly cleared, and they strove to think, and Roger thought of business shivered to atoms in every land, and Deborah thought of schools by thousands, all over Europe closing down in cities, and in villages, in valleys and on mountainsides, of homes in panic everywhere, of all Ideals of brotherhood shaken, bending, tottering. War broke out in Europe. What is this going to mean to me? Millions of people were asking that, and so did Roger and Deborah. The same night they left for New York, while Edith, with a sigh of relief, settled back into her family. The next morning at his office, Roger found John waiting with misery stamped on his face. John had paid small heed to war. Barely stopping for sleep in the last two days, he had gone through scores and hundreds of papers, angrily skipping all those names of kings and emperors and czars, and searching instead for American names, names of patrons, business. Gone. Each hour he had been opening mail and piling up letters, cancelling contracts, ordering service discontinued. Roger sat down at his desk. As he worked and figured and dictated letters, glancing into the outer rooms, he saw the long rows of girls at tables, obviously trying to pretend that there was work for them to do. He felt them anxiously watching him, as in other offices everywhere millions of other employees kept furtively glancing at their chiefs. War, he thought. Shall I close down? 
He shrank from what it would mean to those girls. Business will pick up again soon. A few days, weeks. That's all I need. And he went to his bank. No credit there. He tried other sources, all he could think of, racking his brains as he went about town, but still he could not raise a loan. Finally he went to the firm which had once held a mortgage on his house. The chief partner had been close to Bruce, an old college friend, and when even this friend refused him aid, it's a question of Bruce's children, Roger muttered, reddening. He felt like a beggar, but he was getting desperate. The younger man had looked away and was nervously tapping his desk with his pen. Bad as that, eh? he answered. Then I guess it's got to be done. He looked anxiously up at Roger, who just at that moment appeared very old. Don't worry, Mr. Gale, he said. Somehow or other we'll carry you through. Thank you, sir. Roger rose heavily, feeling weak, and took his departure. This is war, he told himself, and I've got to look after my own. But he had a sensation almost of guilt, as upon his return to his office he saw those suddenly watchful faces. He walked past them and went into his room, and again he searched for ways and means. He tried to see his business as it would be that autumn, to see the city, the nation, the world as it would be in the months ahead. Repeatedly he fought off his fears, but slowly and inexorably the sense of his helplessness grew clear. No, I must shut down, he thought. On his way home that evening, in a crush at a turbulent corner, he saw a big truck jam into a taxi, and with a throb of rebellion he thought of his son-in-law who was dead. Just the turn of a hair and Bruce might have lived and been here to look after the children. At the prospect of the crisis, the strain he saw before him, Roger again felt weak and old. He shook off his dread and strode angrily on. In his house the rooms downstairs were still dismantled for the summer. There was emptiness and silence, but no serenity in them now, only the quiet before the storm, which he could feel from far and near, was gathering about his home. He saw Deborah on the floor above, and went up, and found her making his bed, for the chambermaid had not yet come. Her voice was a little unnatural. It has been a hard day, hasn't it? I've got your bathroom ready, she said. Don't you want a nice cool bath? Supper will be ready soon. When, a half hour later, somewhat refreshed, Roger came down to the table, he noticed it was set for two. Isn't Alan coming? he asked. Her mobile features tightened. Not till later, she replied. They talked little, and the meal was short. But afterwards, on the wooden porch, Deborah turned to her father. Now tell me about your office, she said. There's not enough business to pay the rent. That won't last. I'm not so sure. I am, she said determinedly. Her father slowly turned his head. Are you with this war? he asked. Her eyes met his and moved away in a baffled, searching manner. She has troubles of her own, he thought. How much can we run the house on, Deborah? he asked her. At first she did not answer. What was it? About six thousand last year? I think so, she said restlessly. We can cut down on that, of course. Would Edith and the children here? Edith will have to manage it. There are others to be thought of. The children in your schools, you mean? Yes, she answered with a frown. It will be a bad year for the tenements, but 
"'Please go on and tell me. "'What have you thought of doing?' "'Mortgage the house again,' he replied. "'It hasn't been easy, for money is tight, "'but I think I'll be able to get enough "'to just about carry us through the year. "'At home, I mean,' he added. "'And the office? Shut down,' he said. "'She turned on him fiercely. "'You won't do that. "'What else can I do?' "'Turn all those girls away?' she cried. At her tone his look grew troubled. "'How can I help myself, Deborah? "'If I kept open, it would cost me over five hundred a week to run. "'Have I five hundred dollars a week to lose?' "'But I tell you it won't last,' she cried, "'and again the baffled, driven expression swept over her expressive face. "'Can't you see this is only a panic and keep going somehow?' Can't you see what it means to the tenements? Hundreds of thousands are out of work. They're being turned off every day, every hour. Employers all over are losing their heads. And City Hall is as mad as the rest. They've decided already down there to retrench. He turned with a quick jerk of his head. Are they cutting you down? She set her teeth. Yes, they are. But the work in my schools is going on. Every bit of it is for every child. I'm going to find a way, she said, and he felt a thrill of compassion. I'm sorry to hear it, he muttered. You needn't be. She paused a moment, smiled, and went on in a quieter voice. Don't think I'm blind. I'm sensible. I see you can't lose five hundred a week. But why not try what other employers, quite a few, have decided to do? Call your people together. Explain how it is and ask them to choose a committee to help you find which ones need jobs the most. Keep all you can, on part-time, of course, but at least pay them something. Carry them through. You'll lose money by it, I haven't a doubt. But you've already found you can mortgage the house, and remember besides that I shall be here. I'm not going to marry now. Her father looked at her quickly, and, of course, I'll expect to do my share toward meeting the expenses. Moreover, I know we can cut down. Retrench, said Roger grimly. Turn off the servants instead of the clerks. No, only one of them. Martha, upstairs, and she is to be married. We'll keep the cook and the waitress. Edith will have to give up her nurse, and it will be hard on her, of course. But she'll have to realize this is war, Deborah said sharply. Besides, she urged, it's not going to last. Business everywhere will pick up. In a few weeks or months at most, the war can't go on. It's too horribly big. She broke off and anxiously looked at him. Her father was still frowning. I'm asking you to risk a good deal, she continued, her voice intense and low. But somehow, dearie, I always feel that this old house of ours is strong. It can stand a good deal. We can all of us stand so much as soon as we know we have to. The lines of her wide, sensitive mouth tightened firmly once again. It's all so vague and uncertain, I know. But one thing at least is sure. This is no time for people with money, no matter how little, to shut themselves up in their own little houses and let the rest starve or beg or steal. This is the time to do our share. And she waited but he made no reply. Every nation at war is doing it, Dad. Become like one big family, with everyone helping, doing his share. Must a nation be at war to do that? Can't we be brothers without the guns? 
Can't you see that we're all of us stunned and trying to see what war will mean to all the children in the world? And while we're groping, groping, can't we give each other a hand? Still he sat motionless there in the dark. At last he stirred heavily in his chair. I guess you're right, he told her. At least I'll think it over and try to work out something along the lines you spoke of. Again there was a silence. Then his daughter turned to him with a little deprecating smile. You'll forgive my preaching to you, Dad. No preaching, he said gruffly. Just ordinary common sense. A little later Alan came in, and Roger soon left them and went to bed. Alone with Baird, she was silent a moment. Well, have you thought it over? she asked. Wasn't I right in what I said? At the anxious ring in her low, clear voice, leaning over, he took her hand, and he felt it hot and trembling as it quickly closed on his. He stroked it slowly, soothingly. In the semi-darkness he seemed doubly tall and powerful. Yes, I'm sure you were right, he said. Spring at the latest. I'll marry you then. Her eyes were intently fixed on his. Come here, she whispered sharply, and Baird bent over and held her tight. Tighter, she whispered. Tighter. There. I said spring at the latest. I can't lose you, Alan, now. She suddenly quivered as though from fatigue. I'm going to watch you close down there, he said in a moment, huskily. Chapter 25 Roger saw little of Deborah in the weeks that followed. She was gathering her forces for the long struggle she saw ahead, and his own worries filled his mind. On his house he succeeded in borrowing $5,000 at 10%, and in his office he worked out a scheme along the lines of Deborah's plan. At first it was only a struggle to save the remnants of what was left. Later the tide began to turn, new business came into the office again, but only a little, and then it stopped. Hard times were here for the winter. Soon Edith would come with the children. He wondered how sensible she would be. It was going to mean a daily fight to make ends meet, he told himself, and guiltily he decided not to let his daughter know how matters stood in his office. Take care of your own flesh and blood, and then be generous as you please. That had always been his way. And now Deborah had upset it by her emotional appeal. How dramatic she is at times, he reflected in annoyance. Just lets herself out and enjoys herself. He grew angry at her interference, and more than once he resolved to shut down. But back in the office, before those watchful faces, still again he would put it off. Wait a little. We'll see, he thought. In the meantime, in this interplay, these shifting lights and shadows which played upon the history of the life of Roger's home, there came to him a diversion from an unexpected source. Laura and Harold returned from abroad. Soon after landing they came to the house, and, talking fast and eagerly, they told how they had eluded the war. For them it had been a glorious game. In Venice in early August Harold had seen a chance for a big stroke of business. He had a friend who lived in Rome, an Italian close to his government. At once they had joined forces, worked day and night, pulled wires, used money judiciously here and there, and so had secured large 
orders for munitions from the USA. Then to get back to God's country. There came the hitch. They were too late. Naples, Genoa, and Milan were all filled with tourist mobs. They took a train for Paris, and reaching the city just a week before the end of the German drive, they found it worse than Italy. But there Hal had a special pull, and by the use of those wits of his, not to be downed by refusals, he got passage at last for Laura himself and his new Italian partner. At midnight, making their way across the panic-stricken city, and at the station struggling through a wild and half-crazed multitude of men and women and children, they boarded a train and went rushing westward, right along the edge of the storm. To the north the Germans were so close that Laura was sure she could hear the big guns. The train kept stopping to take on troops. At dawn some twenty wounded men came crowding into their very car, bloody and dirty, pale and worn, but gaily smiling at the pain and saying, Can madame? Later Harold opened his flask for some splendid Breton soldier boys just going into action. And they stood up with flashing eyes and shouted out the Marseille, while Laura shivered and thrilled with delight. I nearly kissed them all, she cried. Roger greatly enjoyed the evening. He had heard so much of the horrors of war. Here was something different, something bright and vibrant with youth and adventure. Here at last was the thrill of war, the part he had always read about. He glanced now and then at Deborah, and was annoyed by what he saw, for although she said nothing and forced a smile, he could easily tell by the set of her lips that Deborah thoroughly disapproved. All right, that was her way, he thought, but this was Laura's way, shedding the gloom and the tragic side as a duck will shed water off its back a duck with bright new plumage fresh from the shops of the rue de la paix and taking some pleasure out of life what an ardent gleaming beauty she was he thought as he watched this daughter of his and underneath his enjoyment too though roger would not have admitted it was a sense of relief in the news that at least one man in the family was growing rich instead of poor Already Hal and his partner, a fascinating creature according to Laura's description, were fast equipping shrapnel mills. Plainly they expected a tremendous rush of business, and no matter how you felt about war, the word profits at least had a pleasant sound. "'How has the war hit you, sir?' Harold asked his father-in-law. "'Oh, so-so. I'll get on, my boy,' was Roger's quiet answer for Harold was not quite the kind he would ever like to ask for aid. Still, if the worst came to the worst, he would have someone to turn to. Long after they had left the house, he kept thinking over all they had said. What an amazing time they had had, the two young scallywags. Deborah was still in the room. As she sat working at her desk, her back was turned and she did not speak. But little by little her father's mood changed. Of course she was right, he admitted. For now they were gone, the spell they had cast was losing a part of its glamour. Yes, their talk had been pretty raw. 
sheer unthinking selfishness, a bold rush for plunder and a dash to get away, trampling over people half-crazed, women and children in panicky crowds, and leaving behind them, so to speak, Laura's joyous rippling laugh over their own success in the game. Yes, there was no denying the fact that Hal was rushing headlong into a savage, dangerous game, a scramble and a gamble, with adventurers from all over Europe, gathering here and making a little world of their own. He would work and live at a feverish pitch, and Laura would go it as hard as he. Roger thought he could see their winter ahead, how they would pile up money and spend. All at once, as though some figure, silent and invisible, were standing close beside him, from far back in his childhood, a memory flashed into his mind of a keen and clear October night, when Roger, a little shaver of nine, had stood with his mother in front of the farmhouse and listened to the faint sharp roll of a single drum far down in the valley. And his mother's grip had hurt his hand, and a lump had risen in his throat, as Dan, his oldest brother, had marched away with his company of New Hampshire mountain boys. We are coming, Father Abraham, three hundred thousand more. Dan had been killed at Shiloh, and it must be like that now in France. No, he did not like the look which he had seen on Laura's face as she had talked about the war and the fat profits to be made. Was this all we Yankees had to say to the people over in Europe? Frowning and glancing at Deborah's back, he saw that she was tired. It was nearly midnight, but still she kept working doggedly on, moving her shoulder muscles at times as though to shake off aches and pains, then bending again to her labor, her fight against such heavy odds in the winter just beginning for those children in the tenements. He recalled a fragment of the appeal she had made to him only the month before. Can't you see that we're all of us stunned and trying to see what war will mean to all the children in the world? And while we're groping, groping, can't we give each other a hand? And as he looked at his daughter, she made him think of her grandmother, as she had so often done before. For Deborah, too, was a pioneer. She, too, had lived in the wilderness, clearing roads through jungles, yes, and freeing slaves of ignorance and building a nation of new men and now she was doggedly fighting to save what she had builded, not from the raids of the Indians, but from the ravages of this war which was sweeping civilization aside. With her school behind her, so to speak, she stood facing this great enemy with stern and angry, steady eyes, her pioneer grandmother come to life. So, with a deep craving which was part of his inmost self, Roger tried to bind together what was old and what was new. But his thoughts grew vague and drifting. He realized how weary he was, and said good night and went to bed. There, just before he fell asleep, again he had a feeling of relief, at the knowledge that one at least in the family was to be rich this year. With a guilty sensation, he shook off the thought and within a few moments after that his harsh regular breathing was heard in the room. Chapter 26 
It was only a few days later that Edith arrived with her children. Roger met her at the train at eight o'clock in the evening. The fast mountain express of the summer had been taken off some time before, so Edith had had to be up at dawn and to change cars several times on the trip. She'll be worn out, he thought, as he waited. The train was late. As he walked about the new station, that monstrous sparkling hive of travel, with its huge halls and passageways, its little village of shops underground, and its bewildering levels of what trains, he remembered the interest Bruce had shown in watching this immense puzzle worked out, the day and night labor year after year without the stopping of a train, this mighty symbol of the times, of all the glorious power and speed, in an age that had been as the breath to his nostrils. How Bruce had loved the city! As Roger paced slowly back and forth, with his hands clasped behind his back, there came over his heavy visage a look of affection and regret, which made even New Yorkers glance at him as they went nervously bustling by. From time to time he smiled to himself. The Catskills will be Central Park. All this city needs is speed. But suddenly he remembered that Bruce had always been here before to meet his wife and children, and that Edith on her approaching train must be dreading her arrival. And when at last the train rolled in, and he spied her shapely little head in the oncoming throng of travellers, Roger saw by her set steady smile and the strained expression on her face that he had guessed right. With a quick surge of compassion he pressed forward, kissed her awkwardly, squeezed her arm, then hastily greeted the children, and hurried away to see to the trunks. That much of it was over, and to his relief when they reached the house Edith busied herself at once in helping the nurse put the children to bed. Later he came up and told her that he had had a light supper prepared. "'Thank you, dear,' she answered. "'It was so thoughtful in you, but I'm too tired to eat anything.' And then, with a little assuring smile, "'I'll be all right. I'm going to bed. Good night, child. Get a fine long sleep.' And Roger went down to his study, feeling they had made a good start. "'What has become of Martha?' Edith asked her father at breakfast the next morning. She left last month to be married, he said, and Deborah hasn't replaced her yet. In her voice was such a readiness for hostility toward her sister that Roger shot an uneasy glance from under his thick grayish brows. Has Deborah left the house, he asked, to gain time for his answer. Edith's small lip slightly curled. Oh, yes, long ago, she replied. She had just a moment to see the children, and then she had to be off to school, to her office, I mean. With so many schools on her hands these days, I don't wonder she hasn't had time for the servants. No, no, you're mistaken, he said. That isn't the trouble. It's not her fault. In fact, it was all my idea. Your idea, she retorted, in an amused, affectionate tone. And Roger grimly gathered himself. It would be extremely difficult breaking his unpleasant news. Yes, he answered. You see, this damnable war abroad has hit me in my business. Oh, father, how? she asked him. In an instant she was all alert. 
"'You don't mean seriously,' she said. "'Yes, I do,' he answered, and he began to tell her why. But she soon grew impatient. Business details meant nothing to Edith. "'I see,' she kept saying. "'Yes, yes, I see.' She wanted him to come to the point. "'So I've had to mortgage the house,' he concluded, "'and for very little money, my dear. "'And a good deal of that,' he cleared his throat, "'had to go back into the business.' "'I see,' said Edith mechanically. Her mind was already far away, roving over her plans for the children, for in Roger's look of suspense she plainly read that other plans had been made for them in her absence. Deborah's in this flashed through her mind. "'Tell me what it will mean,' she said. "'I'm afraid you'll have to try to do without your nurse for a while. Let Hannah go. Oh, father!' and edith flushed with quick dismay how can i dad five children five and two of them so little they can't even dress themselves alone and there are all their meals their baths and the older ones going uptown to school i can't let them go uptown on the bus or the trolley without a maid but edith he interrupted his face contracting with distress don't you see that they can't go to school she turned on him uptown i mean to those expensive private schools father she demanded do you mean you want my children to go to common public schools there was rage and amazement upon her pretty countenance and with it an instant certainty too yes this was deborah's planning but roger thought that edith's look was all directed at himself and for the first time in his life he felt the shame and humility of the male provider no longer able to provide. He reddened and looked down at his plate. You don't understand, he said. I'm strapped, my child. I can't help it. I'm poor. Oh, oh, Dad, I'm sorry. He glanced up at his daughter and saw tears welling in her eyes. How utterly miserable both of them were. It's the war, he said harshly and proudly. This made a difference to his pride, but not to his daughter's anxiety. She was not interested in the war, or in any other cause of the abyss she was facing. She strove to think clearly what to do, but no, she must do her thinking alone. With a sudden quiet she rose from the table, went around to her father's chair, and kissed him gently. "'All right, dear, I see it all now, and I promise I'll do my best,' she said. "'You're a brave little woman,' he replied. But after she had gone, he reflected. Why had he called her a brave little woman? Why had it all been so intense, the talk upon so heroic a plane? It would be hard on Edith, of course, but others were doing it, weren't they? Think of the women in Europe these days. After all, she'd be very comfortable here, and perhaps by Christmas times would change.' He shook off these petty troubles and went to his office for the day. As she busied herself, unpacking the trunks, Edith strove to readjust her plans. By noon her head was throbbing, but she took little notice of that. She had a talk with Hannah, the devoted Irish girl, who had been with her ever since George was born. It was difficult. It was brutal. It was almost as though in Edith's family there had been two mothers, and one was sending the other away. 
There, there, poor child, Edith comforted her. I'll find you another nice family soon, where you can stay till I take you back. Don't you see it will not be for long? And Hannah brightened a little. But how in the wide world, she asked, will you ever do for the children, me gone? Oh, I'll manage, said Edith cheerfully. And that afternoon she began at once to rearrange her whole intricate schedule with Hannah and school both omitted, to fit her children into the house. But instead of this, as the days wore on, nerve-wracking days of worry and toil, sternly and quite unconsciously she fitted the house to her children. And nobody made her aware of the fact. All summer long in the mountains, everyone by tacit consent had made way for her, had deferred to her grief in the little things that made up the everyday life in a home and to this precedent once established edith now clung unawares her new day gave her small time to think it began at five in the morning when roger was awakened by the gleeful cries of the two wee boys who slept with their mother in the next room the room which had been deborah's and edith was busy from that time on first came the washing and dressing and breakfast which was a merry boisterous meal. Then the baby was taken out to his carriage on the porch at the back of the house, and after that in her father's study from which he had fled with his morning cigar, for two hours Edith held school for her children, trying her best to be patient and clear with textbooks she had purchased from their former schools uptown. For two severe hours, shutting the world all out of her head, she tried to teach them about it. At eleven, their nerves on edge like her own, she sent them outdoors to play, entrusting the small ones to Betsy and George, who took them to Washington Square nearby, with strict injunctions to keep them away from all other children. No doubt there were nice children there, but she herself could not be along to distinguish the nice from the common, for until one o'clock she was busy at home, bathing the baby and making the beds, and then hurrying to the kitchen to pasteurize the baby's milk and keep a vigilant oversight on the cooking of the midday meal. And the old cook's growing resentment made it far from easy. After luncheon, thank heaven, came their naps, and all afternoon, while again they went out, Edith would look over their wardrobes, mend and alter and patch and contrive, how to make last winter's clothes look new. At times she would drop her work in her lap and stare wretchedly before her. This was what she had never known. This was what made life around her grim and hard, relentless, frightening. This was what it was to be poor. How it changed the whole city of New York. Behind it, the sinister cause of it all, she thought confusedly now and then of the great death across the sea of the armies, smoking battlefields, the shrieks of the dying, the villages blazing, the women and children flying away, but never for more than a moment. The war was so remote and dim, and soon she would turn back again to her own beloved children, whose lives so full of happiness, so rich in promise hitherto, were now so cramped and thwarted. Each day was harder than the last. It was becoming unbearable. No, they must go back to school. 
But how to manage it? How, how? It would cost eight hundred dollars, and this would take nearly all the money she would be able to secure by the sale of her few possessions. And then what? What of sickness and other contingencies which still lay ahead of her? How old her father seemed these days! In his heavy shock of hair, the flecks of white had doubled in size, were merging one into the other, and his tall, stooping, massive frame had lost its look of ruggedness. Suppose, suppose, her breath came fast. Was his life insured, she wondered. On such afternoons, in the upstairs room, as the dusk crept in and deepened, she would bend close to her sewing, planning, planning, planning. At last she would hear the children trooping merrily into the house, and making a very real effort, which at times was in truth heroic, to smile she would rise and light the gas, would welcome them gaily, and join in their chatter and bustle about on the countless tasks of washing them, getting their suppers, undressing the small ones, and hearing their prayers. With smiling good-night kisses she would tuck her two babies into their cribs. Afterwards, just for a moment or two, she would linger under the gas-jet, her face still smiling for a last look, a last good-night, then darkness. Darkness settling over her spirit, together with loneliness and fatigue. She would go into Betsy's room and throw herself dressed on her daughter's bed, and a dull, complete indifference to everything under the moon and the stars would creep from her body up into her mind. At times she would try to fight it off. Tonight at dinner she must not be what she knew she had been the night before, a wet blanket upon all the talk. But if they only knew how hard it was, what a perfect hell it was! Her breath coming faster, she would dig her nails into the palms of her hands. One night she noticed and looked at her hand, and saw the skin was actually cut, and a little blood was appearing. She had read of women doing this, but she had never done it before, not even when her babies were born. She had gripped Bruce's hand instead. End of section 8 Recording by James Carson